Hello and welcome to Everything Considered. My name is Gautam. And my name is Samson. And today we're going to talk about time and uh, how how we perceive time in, in the day-to-day. Um, how What are the structures that we have arbitrarily placed in our time and how can structuring time actually be beneficial for us? Gautam starts us off with a question he has about how we uh, compartmentalize the different schedules we have on a day-to-day basis. And that led us to a discussion about about creativity, about uh, constraints, about goals, and about uh, about presence in general. I think this is going to be a cool exploration about creativity and how structured and unstructured time and structured and unstructured mediums can shape how we think and the, the types of problems we can solve. So with that, let's get to it. Tell me more. The first thing I wanted to talk about was a thought that I've been having over the last, um, I want to say two weeks or so, since I've been trying to get my schedule more in line uh, for the summer. And this was, this is kind of born of the fact that, okay, I want to wake up earlier. In order to wake up earlier, I have to go to sleep earlier. And I realized that we kind of structure our day around our sleep. And uh, what I mean by that is, our day starts at, you know, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., uh, or 5.30, whatever inhumane hour you wake up at. And then it ends when we go to sleep at, you know, 10 to uh, midnight. And I, f- I find it interesting that we mandatorily organize our day like that. So we have a beginning, which is the morning, a middle, which is the afternoon, and then the, the end is the night. And I was wondering, why don't we structure it? in a way that puts the sleep in the middle. And the reason I was thinking about this is because let's say we take a nap in the middle of the day. Um, That nap is still, you know, a shorter amount of time, uh, a shorter duration of sleep than our sleep at night. And I'm guessing by, by nature that makes it so our sleep at night is still the anchoring point. You know, it's still like a, our day still starts at eight, you know, maybe we napped from 1 PM to 2 PM. Um, and then we went about our normal daily routine until 10 p.m. when we went to sleep, and that's when our day ended. So I thought it would be interesting. What if we organized our day so that it starts at, you know, right after lunch at 1 p.m. or something? And then just like we normally say, like, okay, I have a certain number of things to do today, whether it be homework or research or whatever it may be. We say in this day, so on this date, you know, June 30th. Um, or July 1st, July 5th, I'm going to finish this amount of tasks. What if we split that up by, you know, starting at lunch? So starting at lunch is when your new day starts from 1 p.m. until 9 p.m. Let's say you have this eight hours of the beginning of your uh, your theoretical workday. And then after you take this rest, which is in the middle of your day, you continue working from 8 a.m. until 1 p.m., you know? And so that makes it so that it's essentially the same amount of time, but it's a different way of thinking about that time where that sleep is more of a a respite in the middle of the day. um, And then you don't get a respite at the end of the day before you start your next day. I think inherently there's there are some issues with that in that I want to be able to rest at the end of all of this work being done. But it it was something interesting that I wanted to uh, bounce off of you to see what you thought. Wait, I have a clarifying question here. So yes. in what you just described, uh, the 1 p.m. to, let's say, 10 p.m. is your work period for a day? 
correct? Um, that it, it's more of just like your your waking hours, right? And you can organize that however you want. So, um, the the waking hours that you have are let's say uh, one p.m. to ten p.m. and then eight a.m. to one p.m. Right. Um, and so if you want your work to be limited to one to five p.m. and then five to ten p.m. is your free time, and then eight to uh, one p.m. the the following day as is currently structured. Um, would be work again, you know, so you're still working eight, nine hours a day. Um, it's just that that free time that you have, quote unquote, on the end of a day, at the end of a day is in the middle of your day. So, so between what period of time is that free time? Is it between like 12 to one or is it within one to four? I, sorry, I still haven't wrapped my head around exactly what this is. So think about the um, where you put your free time normally. So let's say normally you uh, wake up at six and then six to eight, you have free time and then eight to five, you work right. and then five to 10, you have free time. Right? right, right. So let's say it's that same exact division of stuff, except now you're starting the day at 1 p.m. So one to five is your work time and then five to 10 again is your free time. And then in the morning, six to eight is your free time. And then eight to one is more work. Does that make sense? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I I think I'm understanding, but in, in the in I, after you sleep and you wake up and you work from eight to one, then mm -hmm. in that previous schedule of of the previous day, weren't you working from one to five? So then, yes, you were. So then, are you repeating that again, or are you like like what happens after you finished one cycle? Because it seems like then you're falling back to a normal workday routine after that if you were to work so, from eight to one and then again one to five right and and i mean that's the same thing that we do in a normal day right the only difference here this is the same exact thing as a normal day except the cycle doesn't conceptually start at the beginning of a workday it starts at 1 p.m you know so instead of saying from eight to five i have all of these tasks i need to complete instead you say from one to five on this day and then from eight to one on the next day, I have those tasks to complete. So your theoretical end of the day or end of that uh, amount of work that you have to complete is at 1 p.m. And that's the beginning of the work for the next cycle. Interesting. Okay, so there's no difference between the actual amount of, uh, like the time windows in which you're working are the same but the right. priorities that you have within those time windows are different based on when you've classified the start and end. Exactly. So it's ju it's just a new classification of that start and end. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. I, I think initially I thought I thought you were thinking of flipping the schedule entirely <laughs> where Why is he sleeping 8 hours during the day? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I I thought it was something where like the whole morning up till 1 would be free time and then 8 to mm -hmm. something uh, or I mean, one, one to five or something is work. And then to do something like to break everything up into four hour, um, altering time blocks rather than an eight hour time block in between the day and going mm -hmm. through that. But, but, but now from my understanding here, you're still essentially having the same work day from eight to five potentially. Right. But then mm -hmm. the priorities that you set for that time day aren't limited to that day, but span, um, like a night as well in terms of right. there's an intermittent period when you finish working at four or five and then start that work again from eight. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. okay so okay. it's like we, we think about, so time can be 
a linear or cyclic thing, right? And in, right. in the in the grand scheme of things, we think about time as being this long linear thing. But then when we divide it up into smaller chunks, every day is a cyclic cycle. Every week is a cyclic cycle just because of how we've conceptualized time in our head. So you're exactly right. It's what, what I was proposing here is same exact schedule and everything. It's just that how we perceive time instead of perceiving the start of the day as 8 a.m. and then doing work from 8 to 5, the work is going to be started, quote unquote, at 1 p.m., go until 5 p.m., and then start the next day, 8 to 1. I see. I see. Okay. Sorry that took me a while to wrap my hand around. Now now I think I no, understand dude, okay. what, what you're saying. <laughs> um, but what what is the advantage of framing things like that uh, from what you're thinking right now? What made you have that idea? It must be tied to some sort of... Um, like division of project time or, or something that has to do with having a break in between your work that, I don't know, are, are you thinking about having more time for creativity? If, if an idea kind of takes a break during a night and festers in the back of your mind and then you're able to restart in the next day? Or do you, tell me more about what, uh, what is the thinking behind you um, framing this, this time window like this. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's twofold. One part of it is exactly what you're saying, where it could be that having this break that is in the middle of the day, so or sorry, at the middle of the workday, um, it helps you process some some tasks that you're doing. So let's say you have uh, a task that you're doing at work that's going to take eight hours, whether it's like a data set you're playing with, a piece of code that you have to write, etc. If you started that new project, uh, like the the day's new task at 1 p.m. You worked on it for four hours and then you just let it sit. I think there's a chance that you will be able to attack it with some, you know, reinvigorated ideas um, at 8 a.m. the next day. Um, and then after you finish that, whatever you had to do between 8 and 1 the next day, then you can move on to your next task instead of starting it at the beginning of the day and then just going straight on through until 5 p.m. at the end of the day and finishing that task. So I think that's one part of it that that uh, that you just kind of alluded to. Mm. I think the second part of it is more of just a... Um, I, I was just thinking of it kind of like a thought experiment. Like, why do we divide up days like this? I think there's some very obvious ideas, like the sun rises and the sun sets at certain times, and humans are made to work during those hours, and how we've divided up those hours right now is the simplest form where it's like during the the daylight hours are one block of time and then the nighttime hours are one block of time. So because of that, it only seems natural that the division happens at the uh, split between the daytime and the nighttime hours. And the beginning of that daytime period, the productivity period makes the most sense because then you can load all your tasks very simply into this one space that is your sunlight hours from uh, 8 a.m. or 6 a.m., depending on where you are uh, and what time of year it is, uh, until 6 p.m. or 9 p.m. Um, so that was kind of just an interesting thought thing, uh, more so than this being a practical thing. Right, right. I, I think that's interesting because at a at a very basic level, like if you gave this to a robot, uh, mm-hmm. there there is essentially no difference between these exactly. two tasks, right? The, the only thing that is different here is a very subtle... Uh, change in mindset about when a task is quote unquote completed. And right. I, I think framing something like that is interesting because um, I, I think if we, if we frame uh, our productivity hours around the uh, 
you know, just when the sun is in the sky and, and when it's daytime versus nighttime, then, you know, at 5 p.m. we have this uh, internal feeling of completion where I think we, uh, I, or I would imagine we would compartmentalize the work we're doing uh, throughout the day and then mm-hmm. transitioning to a maybe less cognitive, uh, more relaxed uh, mindset about taking the break for the rest of the day. Right. And and I I think this is interesting because although in this mindset you stop at 5 p.m. and you're technically not doing any work, um, there's a a little mental check where you you don't stop thinking about um, whatever you're working on necessarily uh, on a uh, like conscious level in the Hmm. the sense that I, I wonder if not having uh that sense of completion but th- that sense of continual progress has these uh, has the ideas from work throughout the day uh come back and revisit the forefront of your thinking when it, during these unrelated moments of uh your quote unquote pastime um mm-hmm. when, when you're relaxing and w- w- that that subtle shift makes me think of um this article I had read, uh, it was this mathematician on The New Yorker who was talking, I think, about um, how he's able to come up with new ideas and theorems and, hmm. and, and what he, he did some analysis about looking about looking at when those ideas kind of come to play. And hmm. there's something he mentioned there about having some kind of unstructured free time where you're not doing your work, where that's when sometimes he gets these epiphanies or these uh these new ways about thinking about whatever algorithm or or uh calculation he's trying to make and uh i think this has often been quoted as uh you know these like shower epiphanies that that people have right like they're taking a shower and then their their mind is just wandering and then suddenly they stumble upon some idea that uh is related to the work they were doing before but they weren't intentionally focused on doing that work in that moment and I, I wonder mm-hmm. if if having a schedule like this that doesn't quite close the door for that the cognitive aspect of the work that you're doing that day, if what that mm-hmm. does is that that increases the um, likelihood or the uh, probability that some of these uh, work-related thoughts could wander into the forefront of your mind as you are... Mm-hmm doing other things and then in doing so potentially give you the opportunity to make some sort of novel connection or think in a way that is creative uh, or uh, different from however you approached it when you were specifically focused on a on a uh, like work perspective that mm-hmm. might yield uh, just more progress despite not having any difference in um, the actual time you, you're allocating in the day to to that work. Right, I think I think that's you. You've presented both sides of that uh, double-edged sword really well because I think part of it is, yeah, you know, um, having the sense of relief at the end of the day when you don't have to think about your stuff anymore is um, satisfying and and it's relaxing. Um, but then at the same time, if you use that downtime to let your mind freely wander uh, and explore these thoughts subconsciously, almost uh, it kind of opens your mind to 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 figuring out things and and figuring out answers to things in different ways that you hadn't thought about before. So it's kind of like, should I employ my subconscious in that way to help my creativity? 
or should I like let it rest, you know? Hmm. Um, and I, th- I think those are both very interesting ideas because I, I think both of those could work, you know, so in, in some cases you want to be like, th- there have been so many times where I've been working on a project or something else I, uh, I need to do that's in front of me and I've not been able to get past a roadblock. And, you know, just if you sleep on it, you do get some ideas out of that. And that's kind of the nature of, of what you're saying, where you are thinking about something and then you take a break from it, you know, take a shower or do, do whatever else, uh, maybe play a sport or something when this idea randomly pops up into your head because it's just been festering in your mind. Um, so this, I, I think the fact that we already kind of do that, if you have a problem that you haven't fully solved by the end of the workday, you are going to kind of be thinking about it throughout throughout the rest of the day and until the next morning, un- unless you have a really, really good delineation of like, I am not allowed to think during this time. Um, but it kind of begs the question. So when we do rest, uh, whether it be in the middle of the workday, beginning of the workday, end of the workday, what is actual rest, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I, I think that there is something to say about that mindset where if you're able to stop doing work mid work and be okay with stopping it there, mm-hmm. I, I think that in itself says something about um, a, a kind of belief in incremental progress where you're, you're mm-hmm. trusting that you don't necessarily need to finish what you're doing that day, but that, you know, you've put in your, um, your, time and you're you're thinking towards that on one day but then you'll revisit that again and then there's a sort of trust that that if you if this becomes a more process oriented and um uh incremental uh project that you're working on that you don't necessarily need to have an endpoint in one day but that you can have things ruminate in a longer term and just trust that as long as you keep putting in the time in this way you don't necessarily mm-hmm. need to see the end product while you're doing something, but just uh, consistently put in the time and trust that eventually something will happen with that. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like I've had moments like that in the past where, uh, I, I mean, I mean, we had this when, when we were roommates, right? I uh, was worried about my, you know, studying for my final exams, but at the same time I had my applications for, uh, my master's coming up in the next month. And then mm-hmm. uh, in my head, I had compartmentalized things to a point where uh, I was thinking, okay, I need to finish all of my studying for my finals. And once I finish my finals and once I can like close that chapter, then I can start with this next task, which is mm-hmm. to uh, write these essays. And then I think you told me to just go upstairs and then for 30 minutes that you were going to time me to just write something. And then I was like, okay, sounds good. And then I go upstairs and for 30 minutes, I like don't know what's going to happen in terms of what I produce, but I'm just going to say that, okay, I'm going to allot 30 minutes to this and I'm not going to have like a benchmark of what needs to be completed. I'm just going Mm -hmm. to write for 30 minutes and see what happens. And then for those 30 minutes, I I wrote something that that, um, I was surprised became an outline for what I ended up writing my essay on. And it, Mm -hmm. it wasn't the intention that I had in the beginning, but just the uh, mentality that what I'm working on right now uh, is not something that needs to be completed or necessarily has some sort of end uh, feature that that marks that it's completed, but just the fact mm-hmm. that 
I'm going to commit this amount of time to it, and then I'll revisit it and continue that, that that kind of helped uh, develop uh, in sort of an incremental way what I what I wanted to produce. And mm-hmm. I think I, I see this a lot with with people who are highly effective and productive with the things that they are able to produce. And uh, there was an interview that I had listened to recently with uh, Abraham Verghese, where uh, the person who was interviewing him asked him a question of, you know, you, you wear so many hats, you are an educator, you are a physician, you are a father, you are a a writer, a novelist. Uh, how, mm-hmm. how are you able to balance all of these things? And uh, I think his response was was very much the one that he he is a big believer of incremental progress. And for, mm-hmm. for his novels and for his books, he would every morning spend an hour or two just working on his writing. And I think the the mindset that he has in that moment is similar to, I think, the mindset that, that we're talking about here in that uh, that starting of the 12 p.m. to 4 or 5 p.m., where mm-hmm. you're just dedicating time to a task, but not worrying about its completion compared to if you were starting your day at 8 a.m. and ending at 5 p.m. 5 p.m. and having that be the hard stop to the end of your day. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, any I, thoughts on that? I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it's kind of just uh, how how efficiently are we able to divide up our time into these discrete chunks that we can fully dedicate ourselves to that task in that time period, but limit that task to that time period, which is exactly what you were saying with that, the essay writing where it's like, you know, take 30 minutes. That's it. That's all you need to dedicate it, dedicate to it now, because I know there are so many other things you need to be doing with your time. Just dedicate the small amount of time, which will lead to progress in the future. It'll help you out by writing right now. The intention of that writing task, however, is not necessarily to limit you, but it's, it's kind of to get you over the activation energy of like, okay, you know, I'm just going to start writing. And a lot of times you just get so excited about that writing that you're able to write more um, and oftentimes longer than that 30 minutes because you're like, I actually have these good ideas that I just didn't tap into yet. But anyway, getting back to the point that we were talking about. Wait, wait real quick. I, I really like that point that, that you made there because on the contrary, it, it even though you're giving it a discrete chunk of time and not focusing on something mm-hmm. like that, yeah. Um, it does. It does not really feel like a fixed moment because, in, in the sense that you are constrained in some way, uh, but mm-hmm. rather, like you were saying about this activation energy, I think it is somewhat liberating to not have a end goal in mind or a task you need to finish, but just allotting an amount of time to it. Because mm-hmm. then, uh, I feel like sometimes, especially with writing, like when I was writing my secondary essays for med school applications and uh, doing other schoolwork. What was crippling for me was always this uh, idea of completion in terms of, uh, like, I don't want to end this day until I finish this essay, or I don't want to end this right. uh, session in a coffee shop until I you know, finish this one topic that I, I want to write about. And mm-hmm. I think some of that uh, intention prior to um, going about something like that I think while it is it is well intentioned to to try to make sure you're holding yourself accountable, I think it can be crippling in a certain way where you become a little paralyzed in, uh, you know, I want this to be a perfect product by the end of this. 
I don't know if what I should start with doing right now is that perfect picture that I have in my head. And because mm -hmm. of that, I'm going to inhibit myself a little bit in uh, the first things that I produce. Uh, where, whereas when you frame something else and like, I'm just going to spend 30 minutes on uh, writing something like this. Uh, it's low stakes. It's, there's no end goal. I'm just going to see what comes out of it. Then you have less of that, uh, that expectation of what you're producing needs to be this immaculate, uh, beautiful product and just uh, more of an exercise of uh, let me let me do some stream of consciousness things to to try to just get out on paper what I'm thinking in my head. And then I think right. what we're surprised by often is we expect that if we don't take this careful, measured time to uh, articulate what exactly we want to say, that then there's a, a loss in terms of the clarity in which we speak about these things. But I, but I think what we're surprised by is that when we just allow us or allow ourselves to to write or work in an uninhibited way oftentimes mm -hmm. what is produced is something that we look back on and reflect on like hey that that wasn't half bad i'm actually glad that um this came out i don't have as many like changes as i thought i would have compared to uh mm -hmm. just producing something in this allotted amount of time i think it's kind of the the concept of going into a sandbox with like the I need to make a sandcastle idea versus going into the sandbox for the sake of all the things that you do in a sandbox where it's just you know create things that you want to be doing in that time and I I totally agree with you I think that just going into that uh just like overcoming that activation energy going into that time with an open mind and just saying I'm going to do what I can during this time is liberating um I think in in terms of studying this, this has kind of yielded both sides to me where part of it is if I go into a study session where it's just like, I want to learn everything about this. And this is what happens usually for me with PBL where it's like, learn what you can about this topic. For example, one of the topics I had to learn about was uh, why do travelers get fevers? You know, uh, what is the most common cause of fever in travelers that are returning to the US? Hmm. And this is the most, like, this is one of my favorite parts about med school. <laughs> I know it's most people's least favorite part, but I love just being able to go onto the internet and just finding out everything about this this one topic and then making it into a cohesive presentation to give to my classmates. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of like, it has an end goal. It has usually a limited amount of time to do it, but it's more of a, a free form or not free form. It's more of, there's no like strict path of, okay, I need to finish this. It's more of just like, go on your way and learn everything about this thing. I find that that same approach is debilitating when it comes to studying for an exam where it's like, you have to know all of these things, but go about it as you will. And you have all of the time in the world until the exam to, to study those things. And I feel like for that sort of thing, dividing tasks up into kind of like what you're saying, where it's like, I'm only going to work on this within this time. And then that's it. I'm not going to think about it after that gives me a tangible deadline to say, hey, I need to like focus and learn all of these things within this time period so that I have enough time to learn all of the other things. What can happen if it just becomes, uh, you know, learn everything about immunology kind of deal is either the sheer volume of it um, kind of inundates you and, and you become uh, hesitant because of, again, the activation energy, um, or you kind of get lost in that process where since you can't see the end goal, um, you, you become uh, a little less 
optimistic and and then you you lose motivation to do that so i th- i think there's kind of two um outcomes to to that kind of approach right right i i can definitely see that in um in an academic standpoint when you're studying for something that there there is a benefit from having some more structure in the discreteness that you you set up these chunks of of tasks that you want to do totally right and that that kind of leads me to this this idea about deadlines because when for me as you know if a deadline's coming up i will finish things right before the deadline sometimes it's just right before the deadline <laughs> but i i will i will make sure to get it done and more often than not i'm very proud of that product and my efficiency just is you know exponential as the deadline gets closer i'm just able to focus more and you know really do do my best work as the deadline gets closer i think this is true to a certain extent for most people um like you're not going to be working on your med school essay when you're a seventh grader even if you know that you're going to go to med school right as the deadline gets closer as you have more ideas uh, you start gaining more traction Usually the, the the year before you apply to med school is when that, that stuff starts crystallizing in your head and you start putting it down on paper. Um, and it's just the relevance of a deadline. This, this leads me back to um, this idea of splitting up the workday in the middle because I think one thing, one issue that I run into with time management is I tell myself these are all the tasks I need to do in a day. Or I might give myself the more exploratory approach, like you're saying, where it's like sit down for a certain number of hours and just do what you can at this task, whether it be essay writing or whatever. I think that or what I've noticed is that by doing this, I end up ending the day with a, a kind, kind of in a sprint. And if I if I haven't finished all my tasks, it usually like cuts into my sleep a little bit. And then I have to sleep in a little the next day to, to you know, um, to make up for that, because essentially the 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 deadline here is the end of the day because I've said in this day I need to complete these tasks. The deadline becomes when I go to sleep, and so just like you were saying, there have been days uh, in undergrad in med school where I'm like, on this day I need to finish these things. I haven't finished those things yet, so I'm I'm not going to go to sleep until I finish those. So it, it kind of eats into your into your night. Right. I think one potential positive of this idea of splitting the workday in the middle which i like anyone who's listening to this this is not a concept that like someone came up with and has been studied or anything it's just a thought that it's one of these shower thoughts that i had you know why don't we think about it theoretically this way but i think one of the benefits of it could be that since your workday starts at one you have one discrete chunk of time which has a very strong end to the perceived workday because of our, our natural circadian rhythm and, and the, the light in the sky um, of 5 p.m., you know, and that's like the go home and rest time. So you have a very, very solid end. So if you have tasks that you want to do within that time period, you can do it within that time period. And then the next morning, if your deadline for all of the things that you needed to complete in this, you know, noon to five, eight to noon um, uh, time cycle you're going to be much more efficient in the morning because you know those are things that you have to complete before noon, whether it be new tasks that you've allotted to that eight to noon um, time period or tasks that have bled over from from the initial day. So this is kind of leading to us to this conversation about like setting yourself deadlines and basically splitting tasks up in order to be most efficient of your time. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Uh, are, are you talking about um, connecting this with, how you're planning your summer schedule right now? Um, <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up because I how I've planned my summer schedule is totally freeform. It's like, you know, 
study these things within this time period and you'll be fine. It's not it's not very granular and I haven't divided tasks up into days or hours or anything. Uh-huh. And and uh you don't intend to be more granular at this point. You, you want to keep it free form. Am I understanding that correctly? I think so because right right now my um I I guess I can kind of touch upon this. So as you know our summer has started. It's already been a week and a half and I have been supremely unproductive. Um, compared to most of my peers who I'm sure are, are deep in, uh, you know, knee deep in studying and research stuff. But my, I have, I have like very broad goals of the summer, you know, it's get a better understanding of all of the physiology concepts that we learned during our first year of medical school. Um, and I have a couple ideas to do that, you know, read certain textbooks, uh, watch certain, so I, like I could read the Costanzo textbook. I'm sure there are other uh, boards review textbook textbooks as well to understand physiology. And then to touch upon the pathology, and, and you had mentioned pathoma is, is a good way to do that. So I was like, you know, what if I take every week, I just take a new subject. So what I've divided up right now is, let's say next week uh, I study cardiology and that's it just next week for the rest of my summer is cardiology so uh from july what 6th uh that week cardiology so i'll, I'll do the costanzo part of the textbook i'll watch the pathoma videos um and get a, a decent enough idea about that where i feel like i learned something about it the following week i will move on to pulmonology you know and read about pulmonology in the textbook understand the pathology um, because I feel like th those things have kind of left my brain since I studied those, what, a year and a half ago. Um, and then kind of just go through all of the blocks like that for the course of, I guess, the, what, eight or nine weeks of summer we have left. So every week, choose a new topic, go through that, understand it to my heart's content, which I feel like this is the first time in med school where I have been allowed the space to learn for the love of learning. Because I, I mean, I don't want to like sound uh, narcissistic or anything, but I do enjoy learning for purely just the joy of learning for, you know, just knowing new things is, is exhilarating. I think once it becomes like you have to learn these things for school, which has been uh, that's kind of the, the meritocratic system of medical school and all education, it becomes much less fun. And you start feeling like you're learning it for the sake of an exam, which you are. So I feel like giving myself this free reign one, since I haven't, uh, I, I have yet to dive into this, this study regime. So there's a there's definitely a possibility where I'm like, okay, this stuff is way too nebulous uh, and I become very disinterested very quickly. Or I think just kind of giving myself the, the uh, laissez-faire approach and saying, you know, just learn everything about cardiology. I think I'll be able to learn for the love of learning. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so I've, I have two comments here. One is related to this uh, this love of learning potentially being confined to only this summer where um, potentially leading into the school year, the um, formalities of exams and of the structure in an academic setting could take away some of that uh, organic curiosity that you have right now in understanding these exactly. topics. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what I might try, try to counter or not necessarily counter, but provide another perspective with is something that I had um, something that was mentioned to me from a, uh, clinician that was leading a, uh, like a, I think like a pulmonology lab session, uh, this past quarter that mentioned something along the lines of, um, you know, it's really, it's really special that right now during this, these preclinical years, your main goal or th the main task you've been given is to just learn 
at, at, right. at the at the foundational level. You know, there are other things you can do with like research and these other extracurriculars that you can get involved in. But the primary thing that is on your list of things to do is to learn. And th- mm-hmm. there is something that is that is magical about that because in every other point in your career, you will still be expected to be learning because this is a this is a prof- medicine is a profession where you know there will be lifelong learning with the innovations that are constantly coming into the field as well as the updates that you need to have with clinical guidelines and uh, you know whatever mm-hmm. things are happening within your specialty and when, within your subspecialty and things like that. But mm-hmm. in all of those future instances. You're expected to be, you know, working these crazy hours, actually doing clinical medicine, and then on the side, having to like learn as well, which right. sounds, you know, a, a little <laughs> intense, right? I mean, like, like when do you when do you live your normal life? Are you are you not just working and studying all the time? But right. But then right now with um with right now being like this very important foundational time to uh, develop the scaffolds in these kind of knowledge domains that are so important for what we'll do later in our career, it's it's really nice that the priority right now isn't necessarily our work or us um, doing procedures or seeing patients. Our, our priority right now is to learn medicine and to go in every day and to learn something new and to retain that information and then to go into the next day, learn something new and retain that. And I think that that one thing that we potentially have a blind spot to sometimes when we're when we've been in an academic for so, setting for so long, I mean, you know, we went through, you know, the the standard uh, educational path of like going through uh, elementary school, middle school and high school, then we went to college. And then most people after college might be working in their uh professional lives but then uh you know a few people will pursue graduate degrees but then in mm-hmm. that setting of graduate degrees uh you know we we still have we, we have just always like this is all we've known you know we, we've just always right. been in a setting where we are learning and i think we do take it for granted to a, a certain extent because i um i was chatting with my uh future sister-in-law uh, earlier today and she had just finished up her uh, doctorate in occupational therapy, and mm-hmm. there there was a a sentiment that she was sharing about how she's really going to miss being in school and just learning something new. She really likes the structure of school that is protected around purely learning something. And then when she had mm-hmm. said that, I was like, "Oh, that is that is interesting." I I I wonder if for the people who enter the workforce. Uh, straight out of college, if there is a certain a, a certain stagnation they feel in the uh, in the daily kind of intellectual stimulation that they receive because mm-hmm. uh, because of things potentially becoming routine or because um, something at work becomes more and more predictable, um, you know that's very different from being in a in a structured academic setting where there are discrete goals of okay this quarter. You're going to learn uh, renal physiology. Next quarter, you're going to learn right. uh, cardiopathology. And um, I think having that uh, protected time that where the only expectation we have is not to necessarily uh, like produce an income or like produce an output that is useful for the world, but just to enrich ourselves, I think mm-hmm. is 
is a very unique gift that we've been given. But um, th- th- that was one comment I had. The, the second comment was was centered more around um, the earlier discussion on structuring time and uh, when we go about having discrete and specific tasks that we have as goals versus when we have uh, some more freeform structure with potentially uh, a less of an end goal in mind, but more of a time allotment of this is how much time I want to commit to something in a, in a broad mm-hmm. sense. And I think when I think about that, uh, in my head, I would divide those into two categories. I think in, in one category, I would uh, classify as work that requires more creative insights and problem solving. I, I would put that in the uh, the more unstructured time that is less granular in terms of the specifics that you assign to something. And then for the other task, for, for one that is much more uh, centered around knowledge gain, I think that is something that for me has been helpful to uh, have some more structure and some more discreteness of having mm. some daily goals for like, okay, today I want to cover this chapter in Costanzo or this subsection in Robbins and uh, I want to do these Anki cards and uh, that'll be it for my day. And and, mm-hmm. and having those goals for the, each of these categories of things that I can check off on my checklist, I think that has been helpful for me to to maintain this kind of incremental progress with the academic goals that I have. But then when I switch gears to um, my computational research that I'm doing right now, I think that shifts more into this uh, creative and problem-solving landscape because... You know, on, on a weekly basis, I check in with my PI. We come up with goals of, uh, of things that we'd like to get done in the next week, the deliverables that we might want to present. And, um, those ones, uh, you know, are discrete in some sense in, in the idea that, uh, you know, there, there is some end product that we'd like to have at the end of the next week. But the way sure. I, I go about doing the task is not as granular as, uh, my maybe like academic goals where I, I think it is more about um, uh, just allocating time on a certain day for this task, but not necessarily having a, a end kind of completion uh, ta- uh, product that, that signifies the end of uh, that day working on that. And like, for, mm-hmm. for example, I, I, if I had one um, mini project that looked at uh, getting the descriptive statistics on finding uh the uh, chronic kidney disease patients that were at risk of kidney failure and seeing how many of them were referred out to nephrology based on this prediction value that we had. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's something that, uh, you know, yesterday I had spent a few hours uh, thinking about how I tackle something like that and um, took a stab at one approach that I'd be doing, but I definitely didn't complete the task that, that I want to get completed by the end of the week, but I just called it a day after I had uh, finished some part of the process as I was working on it. And then today, when I revisited that, um, there I'm, I'm realizing that there's uh, some different angles that uh, should be accounted for in this analysis that I'm doing. And I, I spent another few hours uh, looking at how I can kind of change up what I'd done in the previous day and I've been progressing and and how I've been working on that. But again, there wasn't a set uh, 
kind of end date or, or end task that I want to do today, I just wanted to spend a few hours tackling this problem again. And then tomorrow I plan to just build, pick up where I left off and see, see where that goes for the next hour or two. And then by Friday, when I have my meeting with my PI again, you know, there might be a certain element of, uh, during that last segment of time to say that, okay, I do want to complete, uh, some sort of summary slide that I can then present to my PI so that he can have an update on what I've been doing. But aside from Mm -hmm. that, I feel like every other allotment of time that I've put towards this project is very much uh, unstructured in terms of the goals for that specific session that I'm doing Mm -hmm. that work. It's interesting. I I feel like based on how you've described it, we kind of blur the lines between what is structured and what is unstructured given that there are certain aspects of uh structuring that you need for that creative work as you're saying you know limiting the amount of time it takes having some at least some vague goals in mind um so it's not it's you're not completely task oriented or goal oriented um but you are working towards uh, a certain goal right Mm -hmm. so i think that's interesting i based on how you've divided this up, you know, creative work on one side, um, being more unstructured and then uh, knowledge gain being on the other side, being more goal oriented. I don't want to say that my view on how I divide that up is the opposite, but to a certain extent, I feel like everything I do that is specifically knowledge gain, like, uh, studying for classes or whatever it may be. I think that that inherently needs to be, um, unstructured for me where it has to be like a learn everything you can about this thing um based on my own motivation and my own curiosity and then for things like research and stuff it it helps me a lot to make to break things down into bite-sized super goal-oriented tasks so like read this paper um make a list of these things that that you need um find out what protocols that you need for this contact all of these people um you know solve this thing in the data analysis that kind of thing has to be like very goal oriented and granted within those things especially for things like data analysis when you when you have to uh tackle some statistical problem um it can be much more free flowing and and more of that un- unstructured creative time uh that that you mentioned but i think in that sense to a certain extent my my view is the opposite where the knowledge gain has to be unstructured creative work is more structured um, and even when that comes to like music or something, if I want to record a song or if I want to, 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 um, compose a tune on the piano or something, it helps to have limitations on that. Um, and th- there was actually this, this thing that I, I don't remember where I read it. I believe it was an article I read a couple months ago, but it basically said that the more structure that you have to your creativity, um, the more creative you let yourself be. And the example they gave was, imagine kids in a playground. The moment that playground has fences, the kids kind of disperse all around the playground. When the playground does not have fences, they tend to be more close to the center. And this isn't a perfect example, but it's just huh. to visualize the fact that once you give yourself boundaries, you allow yourself to expand all the way to that boundary. Um, and when you don't have boundaries, you feel limited by yourself to a certain extent where you're like, I don't know where the boundary is. And so you limit yourself to stay well, well, well within that boundary. Interesting. Cause, um, cause when you say that my, my intuition is, is the opposite that, that when you have a fence around something, that is what is constraining you versus not having a, uh, a fence around a playground. But 
Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm assuming that the article you, you were reading and giving this example um, had other examples like this where where uh, discreetly categorizing or demarcating uh, what the confines of whatever work or uh, whatever space uh, someone was engaging with um, that clearly helped in some way to think creatively. I think so. So I I can't think of any particular examples outside of that from that article. But from my own life, I can definitely see ways in which setting up those boundaries allows for us to be more creative. And the couple examples I can give, one is when I was taking improv, I discussed this with one of the instructors where doing improvisation on the spot is actually it's actually very hard. But the moment you have a prompt, the moment you have something to go off of, you've all of a sudden like limited your um your your space of infinity to this one thing. So let's say like the improv thing is you are a businessman who is going up an elevator. Begin. There there's an infinite number of things you can do as that businessman in that elevator, but instead of just saying begin, where now you're like, okay, who am I? Where am I? All of these different things, you are allowing yourself to I guess, um, nurture that, cr- that creativity within that confined environment. And so th- that's one example. Another one is uh, in terms of filmmaking. So as you know, I've been working with Avery on a lot of tiny film projects. And in general, I feel like we, we are able to come up with some original ideas where we're like, it would be really cool for us to portray this. And then we take that and we, we see what we can do with it. I find that in general, it really helps us to have a competition to apply to or a prompt or something. You know, one one of the last things that um, Avery applied to was make a video, uh, no more than two minutes, uh, that is only that is essentially surround that is uh, how do I say this? That is focused around a table. So everything in that video, like every shot, needs to have that table in it. You can have something on the table, around the table, something like that. It has to do with the t- desk or table. And the moment we have that. Uh, restriction it's actually no longer a restriction now we can let our thoughts fly about all these different things we can do at the table and the same thing happens with music if you think about i need to make a song okay wow that can be kind of hard if you sit down and and force yourself to make a song but if you tell yourself i'm going to make a song in this key or i'm going to make a song only with these notes you you would be surprised at how much more stuff you can come up with when you have that limitation and then when you contextualize that thing in, in the grand scheme of things without restrictions, it suddenly becomes this amazingly creative thing. So if you were to watch that video about that table without knowing that we restricted ourselves to a table, you'd be like, oh, wow, this is actually a pretty good idea that you did all these things with the table. Um, but it was born of the fact that we restricted ourselves to using that table. So I think it works in both ways where if you don't have those fences and you have an idea of what you want to do, if, if I bring up an example from my own uh, childhood when we didn't have fences on our playground so we would go up and crawl into the trees um beside, but like next to our school and we wouldn't have done that if there were fences but i think it was because we had that idea that we wanted to do that very specific thing you know go up into the trees and so we did that so i think when you have an idea and you want to be creative with that you know by all means don't restrict yourself and go go through with it i think that when you don't really have any ideas but you want to be creative having that restriction, you know, having the fences on that playground allows you to expand into that space, if that makes any sense. That is really interesting. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I will say, when you first started talking about this, and you were saying that 
like in the analogy you were making that having a fence uh, would be more creative than have than not having a fence. My, my knee jerk reaction was like, no, you're wrong, Gautam. That is the, <laughs> like a fence is inherently a constraint. How could you think like this? But right. but with that that is so interesting. Um, these examples that you've given, uh, things like improv and uh, this music example, where now I, I'm thinking about how there can be this kind of paralysis when you don't have any boundaries in terms of what can be be created or, or, or what be what can be made. And um, so something that had come to mind when you were giving your examples here was uh, was was language, actually. Um, and and so stay with me on this. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it'll. It'll make sense soon. <laughs> it, it, it might make sense. It might make sense in a, in a second. But I remember there was a there was a paper I was I was writing in undergrad during the first year, and uh, I, I I told you about this you know this idea of linguistic relativity, where oh, my uh, favorite your favorite topic, where uh, basically this idea of how um, the different uh, kind of concept labels that are given to you uh, from different languages actually shape the way that you can think and chunk the the world and in doing so shape the way that you perceive the world, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, th- there was something I, I was just reading, trying to read a lot of text about, um, you know, this, this Worthian hypothesis of, of does language, uh, like shape thought and, and how much does it shape thought? And there, there was mm-hmm. one study that I, I was looking at that, uh, I believe, was was either based in in Africa or South America? I'm I'm leaning towards Africa right now. I think but, it was Africa. This was the one with the people who didn't have language, right? Right, exactly. Okay, so so the situation was, uh, within these individual communities, there would be a person that was uh, either deaf or or mute, and um, what what would happen was they they wouldn't be able to communicate with the other people in their community because no one necessarily spent the time to try to engage with these people and and try to mm-hmm. try to communicate with them but then um what one person did was they set up uh a little organization a little a facility where they brought in all of the i believe deaf people uh, across a certain region together from these different communities and then when they came to this community, the, the individuals that were, that were together had developed their own uh, sign language to communicate with each other that mm-hmm. was unique to, to just this, this center, you know. And w- once, once other people were able to, quote unquote, translate this and, and to be able to learn the language that they had created and then to have conversations with them, the, uh, the insights that these people gave about, uh, about what they're thinking like was before and after language was, seems very similar to how we've described boundaries in this context, because mm-hmm. before they, they were mentioning how when they didn't have, uh, words or when they didn't have these these concept labels to to chunk the world around them then there was just this like sea of diffuse information floating around and it was it was very hard to to ground that information into something 
that was actually uh, that comprehensible, you know, and 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 right. what what language did for them once once they um, uh, were exposed to each other and and developed this language to communicate with each other is it basically linearized their thought so that it was no longer something that was just this uh, diffuse uh, kind of nebulous. Uh, cloud of thought that was all, always in their head, but they were actually able to to put some boundaries on specific ideas and thoughts, and then organize them in a way that then allowed them to to communicate in a, in a way that transcended anything that they could have done prior to that. And mm-hmm. it, it, in this sense, uh, the boundary I'm thinking of it, are is or are are these words where you you are potentially limiting the um the kind of thoughts that you're having by by compartmentalizing them into this one maybe concept label but then in doing so you're able to connect these different things together that then uh create something that is greater than the sum of its parts and is then inherently more creative in terms of the the depth of thinking that that results from from uh kind of compressing it into a uh into a language and yeah, yeah, and, and any thoughts on that? Yeah, I dude, this is uh I I think that it is a little bit of a stretch uh if you I'm think sorry, about dude, how I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Take it all back. No, no, I, no. I, I I have something to say to build off of what you're saying. Um it's kind of like you're basically giving yourself a medium uh to express this thing that as you said was previously nebulous. So, imagine like you have a bucket of paint, right? it doesn't really mean anything until you give it a canvas to be put on. And I think in every one of these situations, you're basically giving a canvas for that paint. So when you when you say like, okay, you know, just do some improv, right? You're kind of like, well, I, I have no clue. I could do anything, right? But when you say, okay, you know, you're going to do this improv down on this like white sheet of paper. Okay, so now you have a limitation. I think it's kind of the same thing with language where you're like, okay, I'm going to give you this textured canvas, like put your thoughts down on this thing. And by going through that activity and allowing your thoughts to be restricted and formed by those words, you know, to to use that, I, I think you basically use that medium to um, better, uh, like, flesh out your thoughts. And I think this is exactly, we were speaking about this earlier, I think this is exactly the magic of essay writing, where there are so many thoughts in your head that you don't necessarily understand yourself because you're thinking about it subconsciously until you put it down on paper. Once you put it down on paper, you're like, what did I just write? But then as you form that, as you carve it into a, a sculpture that you're like, this is actually what I was thinking, you know, or or this was the, um, this is the result of, of some uh, premature thoughts that I had in my head. That's, that, that's kind of the beauty of essay writing. You're, you're limiting yourself and you're forcing yourself to put a previously nebulous thought into this very structured, um, both in language and in uh, writing articulate medium uh, in order to convey that in the best way possible. And I mean, this is true with creativity. Um, Like language has been described this way in research in the past. And I'm sure like the Worfian hypothesis and everything with linguistic relativity exactly has to do with this, where language gives you a medium uh, to to make your thoughts more complex and to to understand the complexity of your thoughts. There was a podcast I was listening to about Braille. What um, you're listening to podcasts? Weeks. I'm so proud of you, dude. I'm so proud, dude. <laughs> there's this one podcast that I I've been listening to. I, I don't want to say regularly, but it's a podcast that I always go back to. I've been listening to for probably the past uh, two or three years now. Um, I, I've told you about it, right? It's called Stuff to Blow Your Mind. 
Oh yeah, I, I have heard of this. It's just like they just pick a random topic and then and then research it and talk about it. I don't know. I, I think it's really cool. Um, it's kind of like what we do, except they actually do research. <laughs> <laughs> so they so they were talking about Braille, and in that conversation about Braille, they were talking about how language itself, the fact that you have language, the fact that you have writing, the fact that you have a a way to to channel these thoughts into a more understandable medium we ourselves are able to understand more about our thoughts through language. So the, the, I can't remember the exact quote, but essentially they said language provides a medium for us to basically express more complex thoughts that, that were previously inaccessible. Mm-hmm. You know, they were there, but they were inaccessible. So I think what you're saying about linguistic relativity, about having language suddenly giving you the structure to, to format these nebulous thoughts. I think the same thing with, with music and, and, and filmmaking that I was talking about, where once you have that restriction, when you have a prompt, um, and then the same thing with essay writing, like essay writing, I think is the essay writing actually, I think is the perfect, not perfect, it's imperfect, uh, but, you know, example of what you're talking about, where there are people who don't necessarily know how to write essays well, and they're not always able to convey their thoughts. They're, they will write down what they think they're thinking, and they will be unhappy with it. They will be very consciously unhappy and say that, you know, I, this is kind of the thing I wanted to say, but this is not the gist of it. And if you're able to, you know, work with them and and draw it out of them, what they really want to say, and then write that in a way that they can agree with, all of a sudden they might be like, wow, yeah, this is actually what I wanted to say. And I think that's the same realization that these people came to once they had language when they previously did not. That, that is really interesting. I, I, I completely agree with this. Uh, I, I, I will say, though, that while in, in these examples that we've given, um, these are definitely instances where we're putting... Uh, a boundary or, or a fence on on the um, uh, like demarcating the space in which we're interacting with, whether it's solving a problem or or tackling some some new uh, uh, issue. Uh, while we've mentioned that there are situations where where this can be creative, I think at the same time we have to mention the the uh, kind of converse, which is when creativity uh you know really is uh is cultivated when you don't have the, those boundaries and when you don't have that categorical thinking and when it can mm-hmm. be liberating to take off some of the the preconceived notions the the constraints that you have in your way of thinking about how mm-hmm. you're approaching a problem because uh because i think that is an, another element of how we see real innovation being sparked, you know, I think mm-hmm. um, uh, w- one thing about having this, this very categorical thinking is, is we can get a, a certain tunnel vision about how we can, uh, you know, perceive thinking about solving some kind of problem. Right. But mm-hmm. if, if we take the, the innovation standpoint, um, I, I think a lot of innovation comes from when there are, um, two seemingly disparate fields that come together and try to uh, share the the modes of thinking that they have that um, constrain their uh, potential thoughts on an individual basis. But when they come together, they they, they feed each each other in this uh, reciprocal way that then can um, potentially create a, a brand new way to to look at something that then 
takes away the constraints that any in, one individual person has. So, for example, in in neuroscience, um, uh, the 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 innovations that I saw in a computational neurobiology class, they um they they had to do with with these algorithms that that were made that that replicated these neuronal processes that we do uh, every day when we're when we're thinking and perceiving the world, things like vision, things like hearing, like trying to understand how these work on a on a mechanical and on, on a mathematical level. Uh, the real innovation there came from having uh, a neurobiologist uh, who who's really steeped in the the biological dogma of of how uh, these systems are working, but then bringing in um, you know my professor Terry Sajnowski, who was a PhD in theoretical physics, who then hmm. you know he had his own constraints about thinking specifically in this theoretical physics world, but then when that was merged with uh, with a neurobiologist. Together, they were able to uh, kind of remove the constraints from each other's uh, way of thinking by by bringing some new uh, insights to to one person that is uh, is par for the course for for one person, but completely novel to the other. That then takes away those constraints and opens this way of thinking, and then allows this uh, this gushing of ideas that goes back and forth, and then through that is able to create something that is inherently creative because of the uh the 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 novelty that is produced from combining two seemingly disparate fields together and taking away the constraints in each of those by bringing them together i i think this this is so cool because i've always seen education and knowledge as a a, a you know i think there's two sides to this coin where i think education is extremely liberating and that you learn all these things about the world i think it can also kind of be a shackle where you become limited to to the worldview that is provided by your education and as you become more and more specialized in your field and solving very specific problems in your field and becoming a uh, an expert in that field i think that your ability to creatively think about those problems potentially decreases and mm. i think how how i see this is as we go through our education, like in elementary school, middle school, we knew nothing about chemistry. So if, if you were asked, like, how do you think atoms work and things like that, you would probably come up with some pretty bizarre ideas, which are honestly, theoretically, probably really cool. And then in high school, you learn about, OK, this is how atoms work. These are intermolecular forces, et cetera. And then you go on to college and before you learn organic chemistry, you might think like, wow, how do all of these organic molecules, like what are all these mechanisms? Like how do synthesis work? How does the Robinson annulation work, right? And that that was, <laughs> I guess, I didn't intend to bring up Robinson annulation. You but, always you know, love that mechanism. Example. You, you always love right? that Right, it's mechanism. like, we just, we just sat down and we're like, what if we're able to make a ring out of this, like, you know, pushing these electrons? And that creativity, honestly, I don't think would have been there if we learned like the, I think the fact that we had that knowledge is what gave us that creativity, you know? So I think that fence provided something for us at the same time. I think us like, you know, going up through our chemistry education limits us in terms of our creativity and that we're never going to think like we used to when we were in, you know, sixth grade. And I used to think like atoms were, you know, little bits of imaginary Play-Doh that we can't see. And then when you cut, there's always like more atoms inside or something. I don't know. You know, I, I had no idea. Um, but there, there was, I think we reduce our creativity by educating ourselves, And at the same time, we gain more creativity by educating ourselves. And 
the the second thing I wanted to bring up is what you're talking about when you have one person in one field and another person in another field come together and solve a problem because of uh, their their differing expertises. And I think this comes out of you have one person in one field who has certain restrictions placed on them by their education. You have another person in another field who has certain restrictions on them given to them by their certain education. They come together and then person A does not have the restrictions person B does and vice versa. And so together they're able to make this um, they're able to come up with a new solution. And I, this was kind of the, the main topic of a class that I took in undergrad, which was uh, managing diverse teams. And the core concept of the class was the more diverse your team is, even with less expertise, they're going to be more quickly more and more efficiently come up with more creative solutions to problems. And so the I did you by chance take uh, management eighteen? Uh, I did not, but I've heard you talk about it on a number of occasions, and I feel like I have vicariously taken this class through that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, incredible class. I think a lot of the concepts were things that I had learned through Boy Scouts, so it was cool to see an application of these in the academic context. But uh, coming back to the example, the more diverse your team, the more creatively you're able to you're going to be able to come up with these solutions and so in i i think a, a good example or perhaps a bad example of this uh have you read uh andromeda strain no i have not okay so andromeda strain is i mean i watched the movie a long long time ago and i really hated it and then i read the book and i really enjoyed it mm. and one of the things in the book is we need to have a team of people who are working on this uh, alien thing uh, and they don't really talk much about diversity. But the one thing they bring up is in that team, we need one person who is like unmarried, has no kids, et cetera, et cetera, so that they're the most like independent from uh, from connections to the world. So they won't make as emotional of decisions. I thought that this was, you know, it's not the best example of a diverse team, but it's kind of the starting point of, okay, so you have a team with one person who's different in this one way. And so he, he doesn't have these restrictions of family life, et cetera, et cetera, that these other people have. So this is one step towards greater diversity. Like the next step is in your team, you know, maybe you're solving biological problems, but have a computer scientist, have a philosopher, you know, have uh, someone who's studied like environmental science. Like you can have all of these different people in, in this, in this one uh, problem solving group. And I, I think at the end of the day, having that diversity in our groups is what can lead to the the most creative outcomes. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, if you think about the statistic that, you know, what the U United States is 5% of the world's uh, population, but I think 60% of the uh, the Nobel prizes, uh, I, I think that's a testament to, you, you know, the, the U S has always been viewed as this melting pot of the world, you know, where there is this uh, diverse, you know, multinational um, array of, of people coming together uh, working on these things and tackling these problems that ultimately lead to, lead to uh, incredible uh, new discoveries and in incredible research. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you about, about this way of, of, of framing how um, the, the, like, we all have constraints in the way that we're educated in these things, but uh, right. we all have different constraints on the way that we've learned something. And working alongside another person who has different constraints can potentially in this very synergistic way liberate both of us by by um kind of unveiling the blind spot that uh that you you had um from the other person and then what the other person had by um by by you giving them your perspective 
and and connecting this back to the um the, this fence uh discussion uh, th- mm-hmm. this idea of like boundaries and creativity what what it seems like our, our kind of conclusion is uh and 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 feel free to chime in on this is that from an initial standpoint from from a foundational standpoint you need to have some kind of boundary to to start or or else the the vastness of whatever task you're trying to work on or whatever thing you want to be, begin just becomes so crippling that that you you just can't begin but 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 once you once you um can carve out what specific parameters uh you want to initially uh constrain how you're thinking then mm-hmm. you can you know develop a a certain foundation to to build upon and then uh what once that foundation is built after getting that starting point by initially putting boundaries on whatever space you're looking at to then have the next goal of creativity uh, or to, to reach the next level of creativity, uh, one would need to remove that, that fence or that boundary. And in that way, um, it, it, it seems like the, the real uh, kind of cross-pollination of ideas and of uh, innovation really comes to fruition once those, those final boundaries are removed. And any thoughts on, on that kind of sequential progression of, of, of creativity within, without constraints? Dude, I'm just thinking about the fact that you used cross-pollination and fruition in the same sentence. I was talking to my mom about (laughs) pollinating plants and fruits and stuff earlier today. Um, interesting word choice. I Um, I did not even make that connection that, um, that I'm, I'm happy with it though. I'm happy. It's just all of these words that we've gotten from agriculture that we're now using in our daily vernacular. <laughs> Interesting. So I think, I think, yeah, so part of it is you have this, you know, paralysis of choice at the beginning. You don't know, you have nowhere to start from. And so you, you have this paralysis of choice. Um, and then you give yourself a constraint, you're able to get started and then you remove the constraints once you're like, it's kind of like removing your training wheels once you're riding, right? You, it's hard to start cycling without those training wheels. Um, but then you're able to cycle without them later. Once you have reached that balance, then you can go anywhere you want. I was thinking about this and I, for some reason, my mind always goes to chemistry, but think about when you have a super saturated solution just sitting around, right? If it's just sitting around, and with no effect on it, nothing is really going to happen. But the moment you put a seed crystal, all of a sudden that entire thing can crystallize. Right, right. right. And there are very few things like, like there are very few things that will happen without that seed crystal um, to result in that uh, crystallization. So if you as- accidentally jostle it, right, then that uh, that shock can lead to a spontaneous crystallization or you have a, a sudden change in temperature can lead to a spontaneous crystallization. But having that seed crystal or having one of these inputs is required to get that going. But then after that, it's just self-sufficient, right? And so that's I, that, that was kind of how I um, painted that thought in my head where, you need to have some sort of initial inspiration. And sometimes it can just be spontaneous. You know, you just shake the super saturated solution. Sometimes you need that seed crystal. Once that happens, you know, you just kind of go for it. And then you don't really need those those boundaries anymore. Right, right. I mean, that connects with that like very first example of, of when I needed to write my application essay, right? And then you said like, just, just do 30 minutes of, of work and, and mm-hmm. just don't think about anything else. And essentially that 30 minute time slot was the constraint that I'd put on myself. But then um, once that uh, that activation energy was overcome by putting that constraint, then 
suddenly once that 30 minute uh uh checkpoint came in uh i was very eager to continue working after the 30 points and take away that constraint because <laughs> things had started you know just just, just taking that first step had, had done so much in, in getting the the ball rolling and in, in get it in removing those training wheels in, in the analogy you mentioned yeah i bet you know you you had the seed crystal you had enough activation energy i bet it was an exothermic reaction as well right did you start <laughs> heating up once you started writing <laughs> we get it we get it you, you know chemistry good job dude it's just it's just so fun to to keep going with that example yeah. i think but i think the fact that you're connecting it back to the essay is really cool because i think now we've we've formed like we together we've synthesized a better understanding of your division between creative work and knowledge gain, right? Where both of them can kind of be structured or unstructured. Both of them can have those restrictions or not. And it's just a question of modulating that in order to best serve it. So if you already have that creativity going, don't restrict yourself and just go with it, you know? This might be for your your research when you have certain problems you need to solve. If you have an idea and you, you want to go with it, don't restrict yourself to, say, like uh, a time period. Don't restrict yourself to the, the problems you're trying to solve. Just continue going down that path and see what you come up with. At the same time, if you feel like you need a, a place to start, especially for, for me, what I think about it when you're the things you have to study are just so there's just so much of it. The, the volume is just so great. Give yourself restrictions and be like, I'm not going to study cardiology today. I'm not even going to study blood flow. I'm going to study blood flow in the aorta or something like that. I'm going to study where is blood flow laminar or something like that. Then I've restricted myself, but then I will become interested in it. And then I can, you know, throw down the fences and just once I've uh, reached that momentum, you can discard the fences and just kind of go with it and allow the creativity to flourish after that. So both sides of that, both the creative work and the knowledge gain, but the, the structured, the, sorry, the unstructured and the goal oriented, I think both of them, it, you just kind of have to modulate it to, to best fit what you're doing and to, you kind of adapt it to your needs. I'm with you, man. I like that. And I, I like that, uh, kind of summating conclusion that, that, that we're getting to. Man. Well, what a conversation, dude. Like we started off with a really, really abstract idea of how we can split up the workday. Yeah, that, that really look took... how far we've come. That <laughs> took quite the journey. It, it, it was definitely one that uh, you could not have been able to predict what the next association was. That, that, that was very interesting. I mean, that was, the, uh, that was the goal of On The Fly, right? Right. <laughs> I think it's it's cool that I, I mean, as as we make more episodes, um, we ourselves will see that there are certain things that we refer to very, very often. And I think it's because our, our worldview is kind of based in these things. For me, one of those things is chemistry. Um, and then another thing that we share a lot is our thoughts about, you know, linguistic relativity, um, time. We talk about time, intentionality with time, all those things. And I think I think it's going to be really cool to see how all of these themes play into each of these independent ideas that we cultivate together will be yeah absolutely absolutely and, and i definitely appreciate this element of um uh I, I remember we were chatting before this podcast about uh like what should we talk about today and and i mm-hmm. I, I was thinking I, I was trying to come up with a question that i could ask that could potentially lead to a discussion but then oh, I, you were so stressed I out. Was, I was stressed out. I was stressed out. But, <laughs> but I ended up tabling it and just trusting that. Uh, I, I'm assuming that that you, you probably have a question that will will get us going, and uh, we'll we'll just see where that takes us. And I, mm-hmm. I I think this is a really good exercise of um 
of being present and uh, to not worry about like what the product is, but then to, to just in the moment think about what is being said, to, to think about these things, and then to, uh, without any um, kind of necessity of, of producing something, to just see where something goes, you know? Just, just, just letting that curiosity run. And that, that is an element of, of thinking that I, I'd like to incorporate more and more into my day-to-day. I mean, we've talked about this in the past uh, about, you know, having uh, these, these aspects of spontaneous speech when, uh, when you're in a Q&A after a lab meeting or, you know, you're on the wards and you get uh, pimped. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think this exercise of, uh, of not necessarily having like an end product in mind, but then just trying to to speak off the cuff about what immediately comes to mind and trying to articulate that and trying to set a foundation that like the other person can then build off from and then to continually have the back and forth is, is a good general exercise to have, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, you go for it. Or, or yeah, I, I, I feel like, I, or at least I hope that it has some spillover um, to other domains, you know, because I, I think, I think presence is, is uh, I think an important quality to in, in, in so many different dimensions, right? I, I mean, uh, uh, th- there's some faculty at Stanford that, that are working on um, a specific initiative with patient care that they've entitled presence, uh, specifically attached to um, uh, kind of reinvigorating the humanism within bedside medicine that is uh, anchored towards that idea of, of being present. And I, mm. I think, I think in the in the world's world that we live in right now, with, uh, with you know academic signposts of of you know what our goals should be and and what uh, the 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 paths and the the tracks that we are are hoping to to go down and the and the accolades we're hoping to achieve. I think having those all in mind makes us constantly think about the future and. Uh, think about how what I'm doing right now will prepare me for the future. But I think um, just taking a step back and to relish in the present is something that is 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 more important now than 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 ever in in terms of 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 really making sure that we make the most of the time that that we have and. Uh, not feeling like we've we've lived through a certain amount of time and really and and look back thinking that we didn't really get to live during those moments because we were always uh thinking about the, the next chapter and not appreciating where we were in in, in mm-hmm. the individual moments you know i think that i mean at risk of sounding repetitive the what you what you're saying about you know going into uh connecting with patients and you know going into a patient room with an open mind is is a little bit like what we spoke about today where if you have a a certain restriction in what you want to talk about and you're very goal-oriented and you're like yeah i need to tell the patients these lab results i need to get their opinion on what treatment we're going to do for them and then you know in and out whereas if you go in with an open mind without those the fences on that playground and you say i'm gonna like take this as it comes and uh, really, you know, be present in the moment. I think that itself is 
going to be a fertile land for creativity and uh, productivity between you and the patient. Where Ooh, another agricultural uh, reference. I love it. Fertile <laughs> land. Were you just waiting for that for me to make an agricultural No, reference? no. I just heard it and then connected it to your comment earlier. It was- I nice had a feeling you were transcribing my words and just controlling effing. That, that's controlling exactly effing. that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but it's it's interesting. I I think that having an open mind in uh, both what we spoke about in terms of creativity and productivity, and in in, in the terms of uh, the the realm of the physician, and just in terms of how how we view our own time and not being. Uh, as you said, not fe- not feeling like, oh man, did I did I waste this time, or did did this time go? Did did this time pass me by without me even recognizing it? I think there are things in life that lend themselves to uh, fly away with with time, and especially these these are things that are repetitive and cyclical. And if you have days that are the same day in and day out and hyperstructured. Um, you might feel like, wow, where did all those days go? Um, but the more, I guess, creative time, the more time that you you have to sit with yourself with an open mind and to, you know, have open conversations with others and and try to have these, I guess, emergent endeavor, endeavors, um, you, you make that time less repetitive, like less monotonous, less constant and less cyclical. Um, and I, I think with with that you kind of make it you make you make your life a little more worth living and less cyclical. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm with you, man. I, I agree completely. I, th- I think with that, you know, that might be a good place to to wrap up this uh, this episode. What what do you think? Definitely, yeah. So thank you to our listeners for listening. Thank you to our future selves for listening. Um, and we will catch you guys in the next episode. 